0: if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, a continuation really of a passage of Scripture that we've been examining over the past couple of weeks. Together, Exodus chapters 3 and 4 represent the call of Moses at the burning bush, where God appears to Moses, manifests his presence to Moses, and, and calls him and really commissions him to be the instrument that God would use to lead his people up out of their bondage in Egypt. And so God tells Moses that he intends to visit his people and to bring them up out of their slavery. He is not unaware of all that his people have been facing and experiencing in Egypt, but God is very much aware of it. He has seen their oppression and their hardship And he is going to use Moses as a choice instrument to lead his people out of Egypt. And God says to Moses in chapter 3, verse 10, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so it was an overwhelming thought for sure to Moses. And despite his own protests, the call of God on Moses' life demanded that he be submissive to what God was calling him to do. But initially, Moses is going to balk at the call of God. And so I want to return to that thought this morning, balking at the burning bush. Now, you know what it means to balk. It means to hesitate. It means to be reluctant to do something. And so God calls Moses. God makes his, his will known to Moses, lets Moses know that he's got a job for Moses to do, but Moses hesitates at that calling initially. And Moses begins making some excuses for why he's really the wrong man for the job. And in looking at chapters three and four, there are really three overarching excuses that Moses comes up with. And and I'm convinced that these are some of the same excuses that we use for why we can't do something that God calls and commands us to do. You know, we're really good at coming up with excuses. And and that's not just true of children, I have discovered, but it's true of me as a grown man. It's easy for me to want to come up with some type of excuse uh, for why I can't do uh, something difficult Something that God has clearly commanded me to do in his word. And Moses is going to discover that there's no excuse that's sufficient because God is all that Moses needs. The God who calls and the God who commands is also the God who enables. And so if you have your Bible there, Exodus chapter 4, let's read beginning with verse 1. Then Moses answered God, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. And so he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. And by the way, that's how we know Moses had good sense. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Which, by the way, the word he uses here, Lord, it's the word Adonai. You know, you can't say Lord and no at the same time. But that's something that a lot of us want to do. We want to say Lord, but we also want to tell him no at the same time, and you can't do that. Verse 14 says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. And he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses is balking at the burning bush when he needs to be bowing before the God of God who is calling him. You know, in life, we're all faced with the decision to say yes to God and no to self. And we're faced with this decision each and every day of our lives as the disciples of Jesus Christ. He calls us to follow him in submission and in obedience, and really that demands a self-denying kind of faith. Remember Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, uh, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then Jesus asked this question in that passage, uh, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he forfeits himself? I mean, what does it profit someone to gain the whole world but only lose their soul in the process? What benefit is it to accumulate the stuff that the world says is important only to lose what matters in the end? And so the point is you say yes to self, you lose your soul. You say yes to God, Jesus says you find your life, which means that the message about, uh, of the cross is not ultimately a message of self-fulfillment, but self-denial. And remarkably, it's the most self-fulfilling self-denial that you'll ever experience. Obedient submission is what the call of God demands upon a person's life. And really, no one wrote about this with any more clarity than Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic work, The Cost of Discipleship. And just a powerful paragraph, listen to what Bonhoeffer wrote. He said, the cross is laid upon every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It's that, deny, that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives over to death, and thus it begins. He said the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. Now listen to this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It's the death of the old man at his call. In other words, when Jesus calls us to follow him, then all that contradicts his call, all that contradicts his lordship over every area of my life, all of that has to go. I mean, we serve one Lord, and there must be absolutely no rival to his lordship. We listen to his voice, and all other voices are secondary. We bow to one authority. We bow to one master. All other authorities and influences, they have their place, but no one takes the place of the lordship of Jesus Christ in my life and your life. And that's something that Moses is learning here in this narrative of his call at the burning bush. Because God is revealing to Moses who he is, He's placing upon Moses this divine call, and and Moses is going to timidly respond to that and make various excuses. Who am I, Moses asks. He's he's keenly aware of his own weaknesses. He's, He's very much aware of his own inadequacies, and he's going to offer God multiple excuses as to why God should simply pick someone else for the job. But God responds to Moses by saying, I'm going to be with you. I am with you. I am ultimately all that you need. And Moses is going to learn that it's the presence of God with him that makes the difference. But again, his initial reaction here is to hesitate. It's to want to balk at the call of God upon his life. Now, three excuses. We've already looked at the first excuse, but let me just mention it for the sake of review. Number one, Moses expresses insecurity in his calling. He expresses this this insecurity uh, with reference to the call that God lays upon his life. You go back to chapter 3, you see in verse 11 that he responds by asking this question, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Uh, Who am I that I should be the one to confront the most powerful man in the land? Who am I that I should go to Egypt and lead your people out of their bondage? And so this is revealing quite a bit of insecurity in Moses' life, and to combat that insecurity, Moses needed to know something. Uh, What is it that he needed to know? Well, he needed to be comforted by the presence of God to begin with. Notice in verse 12, God says to him, but I will be with you. So there's the promise of the presence of God with Moses, and that's all that Moses needed to know. I will be with you. No matter what you face, no matter the challenge, no matter the opposition, no matter the obstacle that you see in the path, you need to know that I am with you. By the way, isn't it interesting that the call to discipleship and the call to uh, take the gospel to the nations, Jesus makes this same promise to his own disciples. No matter what you face, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, and you think the task of the Great Commission and how this is so overwhelming, and we think about just the weight of that. Doesn't it mean something to know that we're not attempting it in our own effort, our own strength? God's not left us to our own resources, but he has promised his own very special presence with us. I will be with you, Moses, And then Moses needed to know something about the person of God. He needed to be absolutely convinced of the person of God. He sort of asks a second question uh, in in this line of logic uh, there in chapter 3. He's asked the question, who am I? Well, then he follows that up by asking God the question, who are you? Let's say I go and I do what you're telling me to do. I come to the people of Israel and I say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And so he's asking God the question, who are you? Who do I tell people you are? Now he's asking more than just the designation that God goes by. He's asking about God's nature. He's asking a question about God's character. In the Bible, a person's name was an insight to that person's character and nature. In many ways, a person's name told their story. So Moses is asking God, what's your story? Who are you? Who do I tell the people that you are? And notice how God responds to Moses. He says, I am who I am. You tell the people that I am has sent you. You tell the people that I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. In other words, God says, I have not changed. I am the self-existent one. I am the personal God. I am eternal in my being. I am inexhaustible. You will never run out of resources when you place your faith and trust in me. I am all that you need and then some more and then some more. And I am unchanging in my character. That's what God is saying here to Moses when he reveals his covenant name, Yahweh. And so when you come across the word Lord or God and you notice that it's 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 spelled with all capital letters in your English translation, know that it's translating this covenant name of God that's revealed to Moses. Yahweh, Jehovah. God says, I am. He's a present tense God. There's never been a time when God has said, I once was, but I no longer am. There never will be a time when God says, I will cease to be. No, God says, I am that I am. And that's all the confidence that Moses needed. So he needed to know something about the presence of God with him. He needed to be absolutely convinced by the person of God. And then something else, he needs to be compelled by the promise of God. The promise of God. You get down to verse 17 in chapter 3, and God says, I promise. Tell the people that I promise that I will bring them up out of their affliction. And the fact that in these two chapters that God refers to himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that's calling attention to the fact that he is the promise-keeping Savior. He is the promise-keeping God. And just as he was faithful to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, so also will he be faithful to his people. The God who makes promises never goes back on those promises. The God who says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, he will never go back on his word. The God who promises to save those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to separate from them their sin as far as the east is from the west, he will never go back on his promises. And doesn't that do something for your faith? Doesn't that do something for your confidence to know that our God is a promise-keeping God? He will never go back on his word. And so Moses needed to be compelled by the promise of God. He could be confident and all of this really is intended to combat that insecurity that Moses was experiencing in his calling. The I am that I am. That's all Moses needed to know. And by the way, it's the same thing you and I need to know and be convinced of. Are you feeling weak? God says I am your strength. Are you feeling afraid? God says I am your courage. You feeling despair? God says I am your hope? Are you feeling without? God says, I am your supply. Are you feeling helpless? God says, I am your refuge. Are you feeling captive to some situation? God says, I am your deliverance. Are you feeling guilt? God says, I am your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy. Are you feeling depressed in your spirit? God says, I am your joy and I am your song. Are you feeling unsure of yourself? God says, I am all the wisdom that you need. And it's interesting to me that in the gospel of John, John records seven key I am statements that Jesus himself makes which is a clear claim to deity, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am living water. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm telling you, we have a present tense God, a very present tense savior. And so remind yourself of this when you're perplexed by the insecurities of life. Now, that's the first excuse Moses offers. You get into chapter four, and there are two more excuses that he offers. The second excuse is this, Moses assumes the impossibility of his success. Claiming insecurity in his calling, expressing that overall insecurity, this is followed up by him just believing that God is calling him to an impossible task. One that no success is possible because he says to the Lord in in verse one Behold, the people, they're not going to believe me. Let's say I go and I tell them what you told me to tell them, they won't believe me. They won't listen to my voice. They will say, The Lord did not appear to you. So he sees himself as the kind of person that no one else would believe. Now, again, you think about perhaps what may be running through Moses' mind at this point. Uh, In his mind, 40 years earlier, he knows that he had tried and had failed and was rejected. And so he's saying to the Lord, I'm not persuasive enough. I'm not believable enough. The people won't take me serious. In other words, he's saying, I'll look foolish in their eyes. The people will reject me. Which tells me that with the passing of time, 40 years had not relieved Moses of the sense of failure that he believed himself to be. And so he sees himself as being totally discredited. You might could even say that he's paralyzed by the fear of man here. You know, the fear of man is something that will absolutely immobilize us. Keep us from taking action in some area. The fear of man is something that will often gag us to silence when we should speak up. Fear of man is oftentimes something that will keep us as the disciples of Jesus from engaging our neighbors and our family members and people that live across the street from us. Fear of man keeps us from engaging people with the gospel. Fear of man is deceptive. It's powerful. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 29, 25, that the fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Here's the thing, folks. We always obey what we fear. Because if the fear of man is an operation in my life, then that's, that's, that's who I'm going to obey. That's whose approval I'm constantly going to be looking for. Fear of man, what people might say about me, what people might think about me. Better dare not do anything to rock the boat. Better not do anything that would ever upset anyone in any possible way. But the Bible says that the fear of man is something that's a snare. Moses is assuming that the people are going to reject him. You know what he's doing here? He's dealing with the the, the hypothetical. Strictly the hypothetical. He's saying, what if? What if I go and they don't believe me? What if I speak up and they won't listen to me? What if I tell them what I've done and where I've been and they don't believe me? I came across a, a little, I guess it's an, ac- an acronym for the little word fear. fear false evidence appearing real. Fear always uses the language of what if. Fear always lives in the realm of the hypothetical. And all too often, there's this underlying fear of rejection that results in us being sidelined when God's clearly commanded us to do something, when God's laid a calling upon our lives. We then begin to weigh that calling in the balance, and we don't want to be rejected by the crowd. By the way, this this is something that oftentimes young people grapple with especially fear of rejection, fear of losing the approval of their peers, peer pressure, this constant pressure that's put upon our our young people to just go along with the crowd. By the way, it's not just young people who deal with that. I think you see this same pressure that's being exerted uh, nowadays through social media. Believe what society believes about this issue. Follow the crowd, lest you be ostracized. And there's that fear of rejection that oftentimes leads us to be tight-lipped when we should speak up and speak truth. It's not easy. Moses says, Lord, I can't go because the people won't listen to me. But you see, here's the thing. He's obeying the wrong kind of fear. What he needs to do is fear the one who's laying this sense of calling upon his life. The fear of God, the Bible says it's the beginning of knowledge. It's the fear of God that's the beginning of wisdom. And Moses is hesitating here out of unbelief because God has already told him that the people would listen. If you go back to chapter 3 and verse 18, God says to Moses, they will listen to your voice. So really, this is an unfounded fear. There's no reason for Moses to even offer this excuse because God has already given him his word. But Moses hasn't listened. Moses hasn't responded to it in faith in belief. And so he's dealing with the hypothetical. Most of the problems in my life can be traced back to a failure to simply believe the word of God in some area. Most, if not all, I worry about the future the unknown, constantly tempted to live in the realm of what if? What if this happens? What if that happens? Chronic worry and anxiety about circumstances beyond our control, they they all have this tendency to just hound us during the day, haunt us during the nighttime hours. Some years ago, I read a book by uh, an author named Francis O'Gorman, and it was a book on worry. And in that book, the author made this statement, worry is like a woodpecker tapping away at one's day from inside the unobservable parts of the mind. Just through the day, what if, what if, what if? And and, and, and the author traces the history of worry in, in, in our Western world as we know it. He says that worry, which at first referred solely to the act of choking, Originally, that's what the word meant. It came to acquire its more modern sense uh, throughout the 19th century. But basically, it made this point that worry is the unhappy child of a turn from God to man, born as we shifted from a belief in predestination and omnipotence to reasoned thought as the best way of making sense in life. It was a shift that put man at the center of the universe. And isn't it interesting that our worry levels went out the roof as the result of putting ourselves at the center of the universe rather than bowing to the omnipotence who's upholding all things by His sovereign word of power. The chances are, now listen, I don't don't want to I don't want to be insensitive because chances are you or someone that you love greatly struggles with anxiety. I can tell you, in the wake of 2020, the last three years, I've had more conversations with people who've been struggling with anxiety and depression, perhaps more so than any other time in in my ministry. You've seen the data, you've seen the news reports. I mean, coming out of 2020, I mean, just the the anxiety levels of people are are off the charts. There was a story in U.S. News and World Report from some time ago that ranked the United States as being the most anxious nation on the planet. An article in the Journal of the American Medical Association cited a study that indicates an exponential increase in depression. People of each generation in the 20th century we were three times more likely to experience depression than people of the preceding generations. Three times more likely. One psychologist pointed this out. Uh, His name is Robert Leahy. The average child today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. Now think about it. Kids today have more toys, more gadgets, more clothes, more stuff, more opportunities than preceding generations. And yet all of the latest data tell us that they're facing levels of stress and anxiety like never before. And so all of this perhaps leads us to ask the question, how can this be? Why are we such a worried generation? Our cars are safer than ever? I remember going visiting family in in a minivan we had no seat belts in the bench seats in the back of the van and I can remember crawling under the 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 seats of the bench with my little sisters as we were driving down the interstate and didn't think anything of it mom and dad I wouldn't advocate that for my two I'll tell you that right now I want to make sure they're buckled up tight but there's just such high levels of stress in society today and one of the reasons I think for that perhaps may be the rate of change. Things change at such a rapid rate. The speed with which we learn of stuff, bad news comes our way quicker than ever before. Uh, In our grandparents' generation, news of a disaster in another part of the world, it would take days before it became known. And then in our parents' generation, the nightly news would have communicated the catastrophe. So you didn't find out about it until the evening news. Well, nowadays, it only takes a few seconds for us to find out what's happening anywhere in, in any part of the world, and we all watch it unfold in real time. And before we've had the time to process one crisis, we hear of another crisis and then another crisis. And so there's no wonder we live under the weight of such stress. Worry visits us all, and we all deal with the emotional stress and trauma of anxiety. I love what Max Licato says. He says, the presence of anxiety is unavoidable, but the prison of anxiety is optional. You don't have to live in its prison, my friend, because our God is a prison-shaking Savior. And that's what Moses is doing here is he's using the impossibility of his success ultimately as an excuse because this is fear, fear of man, unbelief, the hypothetical. This is what's ruling his heart. But rather than chastising his doubtful servant, notice how the Lord gives Moses some signs that testify of his own power and (laughs) sufficiency. The first sign involved Moses' staff. Verse 2, the Lord says, what's that there in your hand? By the way, that's a good question, isn't it? God says, what is it that you have in your hand? By the way, what is it that you have in your hand? During those 40 years of being a shepherd in the wilderness, Moses had a staff, something that he leaned upon, no doubt, something that he used by means of his occupation. Now, God is saying, you take what's in your hand and you give it to me. How might your life change if you take what you're leaning upon and you put it in the hands of God? Rather than leaning all of your weight upon it, you put it in the hands of God and you cast all of your cares upon him knowing that he cares for you and discover that he can hold you and your problem and the rest of the world all at the same time. What's that in your hand, Moses? Moses says it's a staff and God says throw it down. He does so, and it turns into a snake. And again, Moses has good sense because he runs from that thing. And then God tells him to do something that, I'll be honest, I think I would have argued with God too. He says, Moses, reach down and pick that thing up by the tail. I believe I just really said, Lord, I'll go to Egypt. Okay, <laughs> I'll never forget, uh, Anita and I, we hadn't been married too long first house we lived in was out in the country. First church I served was a country church. And we probably had three or four acres of just, you know, property and grass around the little house we lived in. There were some horse farms on both sides of us. And we were out working in the yard one day. Anita was on the mower. I had been doing some weed eating. I went inside the house and I heard the mower shut down. And she was mowing out in a field right beside the house. The mower shut down, and next thing I know, I heard a blood-curdling scream. I ran out of the house to see what in the world was going on, and, and I ran out there to where Anita was, the mower. She said, a snake, a snake, a snake. And sure enough, I pushed that lawnmower out of that high grass, and I saw a black tail sticking out from under that mowing deck. I kid you not, we unwound at least a six, six six-and-a-half-foot black snake from under that mowing deck that had bogged that lawnmower down. But the funny thing was, as messed up as that snake was, after that mower got a hold of it, that thing's mouth started doing this right here. And she and I both screamed and just started running. I couldn't imagine reaching down and picking that thing up by the tail. But Moses, he does what God tells him to do. He's learning obedience. And as soon as he grabs this snake by the tail, it turns into a staff again. God tells him to do the same thing with his hand. Stick your hand into your vest. Moses pulls it out, it's leprous. He tells him to put it back in his cloak, pulls it out again. His flesh is restored. Watch the point. The point is God is showing Moses by way of confirmation and sign that he is sovereign over life. He is the God of creation. He is the God of salvation. If it's not enough, Moses, he says, I want you to take some water from the Nile River, pour it out on the dry ground. It'll turn to blood. Now, you need to know something about the Egyptians. They worshipped the Nile River. They viewed the Nile River as being the source of all Egyptian life. And so in this simple sign, God is demonstrating that he is sovereign over the false gods of the Egyptians. The very thing that the Egyptians claimed to be the source of their life, God is saying the river's not the source of their life. I'm the source of life. I'm the giver of all life, and I'm going to prove it. And so, Moses, what what excuse can you offer? You, You claim that your task is impossible. You claim the mission is impossible. You need to know who it is that's sending you on this mission. Because with me, nothing is impossible. Now, there's one final excuse that Moses gives. I'll give it to you, then we'll close with this. Notice how Moses claims inadequacy in his giftedness. He expresses insecurity in his calling. He assumes the impossibility of his success, but then one final excuse that he will offer is is inadequacy. He just claims that he's inadequately gifted. You get down to verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. I can't talk good. Maybe you can identify with him here. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this passage in the message where he says that Moses says, Master, please, I don't talk well. I've never been good with words, neither before nor after you spoke to me. I stutter and stammer all over the place. There was a survey in the Wall Street Journal some years ago that ranked public speaking as the number one fear among people it ranked higher than being hit by a car. Meaning that people would rather be hit by a car than to stand up here and do what I'm doing this morning. But when Moses says, I'm not eloquent, he really meant, I'm not adequate. He wasn't qualified in his own estimation. He didn't have what it takes to truly be successful. He was not the kind of man that typically makes for the confident, well-spoken leader. And he's unsure of himself. Really reminds me of something the Apostle Paul said about himself. Now, I don't know what impression you get of the Apostle Paul when you think about his life. You might think of someone like Billy Graham, you might think of the Apostle Paul with some type of ability to to speak like a Winston Churchill, Ronald Reagan but you know what Paul tells the Corinthian church? He reminds them of his time spent with them. He says, when I came to you, brethren, I didn't come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech. He said, I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now listen to his own personal admission here. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear. And in much trembling, my speech, my message, were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, Paul says, I didn't come as some great gifted orator who could mesmerize the masses. I was scared to death when I was with you folks. I was trembling. But he didn't want their faith to be in his own ability or his own personality, but to be in the power of the God that had called him and commissioned him, and to be in the gospel that he was preaching. And the same thing's true for Moses. It would not be his exceptional giftedness that would get the job done, but it would be the power of God at work in Moses' life. Now, folks, I'm telling you, you think about those lost loved ones that you have in, in your own area of influence, neighbors family members. You know, there's nobody who loves your family like you love your family. But oftentimes, we tend to operate under this assumption that we can't witness to our family members because they know us, we know them. It's just too awkward. Don't let the enemy sell you that bill of goods. That's a lie. Nobody loves your family more than you love your family. Look for the opportunity. Don't rely upon your own giftedness or your own ability to speak, but listen, just follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Place all of your confidence in the gospel message itself and just love on them in Jesus' name and point them to Jesus. And watch what God will do. Watch how God will use you where you work. Watch how God will use you there in that neighborhood where you live, where you see a need and you respond to that need. In in, in Christian compassion, and you use that as an opportunity to use your words and to communicate why you do what you do because of the God who saved you, the God who so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son, who suffered and died to save you from your sin. And and that's, that's how God works, isn't it? It's one person at a time. God uses ordinary folks just like us, not exceptionally gifted, but filled with his spirit, passionate for the gospel, and committed to the task. I think about many of the judges and the leaders of Israel, many of whom were fearful and backwards and unsure of their own abilities. I think about Gideon and his 300. I'll be honest, the flannel graph pictures of Samson in Sunday school when I was growing up, without exception, every picture that I ever saw of Samson had Samson... I mean, he looked like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. But I don't really believe that's what Samson looked like at all. You want to know why? Because the Philistines didn't know where in the world he got his strength. And if he looked like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, the Philistines probably would have said, those biceps, those quads, those traps. Phew, that's where he gets his strength. No, I think, I think, I think Samson might have looked like me. <laughs> <laughs> Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? Moses sees himself as a nobody. A washed-up man well past his prime. He offers excuses. Insecurity in his calling. The impossibility as far as success was concerned, inadequacy as far as his giftings were concerned. But God says to Moses, I'm all that you need. I am that I am. And the answer to each of these excuses in my life and your life, it's God's I am, isn't it? He is your strength and your salvation. He is sufficient where you're insufficient. He is able where you're unable, he's more than enough when you feel less than enough. I know this is a verse that's taken out of context so very often, but I love Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. That doesn't mean you're gonna hit a home run every time you get up to the plate. It doesn't mean that you're going to be called to a life that's free from difficulty or adversity, or free from failure. But in the context of that promise, Paul is talking about dealing with the pressures of life and contentment. I can do all things. I can, I can experience want and, 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 and I can deal with stuff. I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. Do you know Christ in a personal saving way? I mean, do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is your Savior? that he's forgiven you of your sin and that he's placed his Holy Spirit in you. If not, then right now, this morning, right there where you are, why not say, Lord Jesus, please save me. I confess my weakness, my fears, my flaws, my sins and my failures. And I bow, broken at your feet. Would you save me, Lord? Would you forgive me, Lord? And my friend, there is no person who has turned in faith to Jesus Christ that he has ever turned away. You come to him. You're a Christian, and you're feeling the weakness of life right now. You're you're tired. You're exhausted. You're anxious. So unsure. Insecure. You feel like you maybe can't make it another step. What does it do for your soul this morning to hear God whisper to you, I am that I am. You hungry? I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Are you thirsty? He says, come to the fountain and drink. I am the living water. Are you fearful? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Oh God, how we love you, how we need you. We live in a fearful world. Lord, this mission of making disciples is a God-sized mission. We can't do it in our own effort and strength, Lord, but as we look to you, O oh Christ, you are our sufficiency. All the authority that we need has been given to you, Lord, and you've promised to be with us even to the end of the age. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. In your sweet name we pray. Amen.